0: and welcome back to Survive This Crit. This episode, we will be interviewing SEO extraordinaire, marketing guru, and communication savant, Celeste Renee. Celeste can often be seen in a variety of social and political circles in the DC area, dazzling everyone with her wit, charisma and her excellent communication skills. She is also a content creator herself with a brand new podcast called A Better Way to Say, which helps everyone deepen their conversational skills, referencing some of history's best communicators. She is also launching her own fashion blog. Celeste also happens to be my sister and Nick's sister-in-law. So welcome to the podcast.
1: Wow, I was not expecting this thoroughly well-researched introduction to me. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Happy to be on Survive the Script.
0: You're an interesting choice to have because you're not technically a, uh, well, you're a content creator. You're not a filmmaker. But we figured this would be the perfect movie for you to be on because Silence of the Lambs is so much about communication and the art of a debate and investigation and really getting to know a person through the words that they say. So, welcome. Thank so you. So we have a couple of more one-off questions to ask first before we get into some of the more challenging stuff. So let's get started. What is the first horror movie you remember seeing?
1: Ooh, okay. I am trying to pin down the name of it. Maybe since you guys are horror buffs, you can help me. Yeah. It was a movie that takes place in the catacombs of France. They go oh. down into these underground tombs. And there's a big group of them at the beginning. And then only a few emerge at the end. And, oh, As Above, So Below. That is the name of yes, the movie. Yes, that's yeah. it. That's it right there. Yes. So that was the first and maybe last movie I saw.
2: The <laughs> I'm not second big- you said... The second you said catacombs in Paris, I knew exactly what you're talking about.
1: Yes, that was the thing that started it all and ended it all for me personally. <laughs> started and ended.
2: Well, so since that's your only one, uh, mm-hmm. was there anything you liked about it, or what did you hate about it?
1: Hmm. You know, there's there's a nice little history at the beginning. They gave some history around the catacombs. If you listen to my podcast, you'll know I like going back into history a bit. So that was something I enjoyed about it. France, who doesn't love watching a movie that takes place in France? Pretty even much if
0: it's in the catacombs, you know?
1: Even even there. <laughs> so I guess those are the things I liked about it. Hated, I mean, I just, I'm not very into horror, can you tell? So <laughs> letting, <laughs> watching people get abducted by ghosts and demons in the underworld is just not my favorite pastime. That was
0: probably the hardest to watch.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was I was very surprised when you came out with that one. I mean, Yeah.
0: That's a I rough haven't even one seen to start it. with. Like that's a heavy hitter.
2: Anything that deals with the paranormal like I purposely don't try to watch too many paranormal ones cuz those are the ones that really freak me out. Yes, paranormal activity, Kylie, is one of my favorites, but it's because of that that I started to grow a little cautious of the paranormal stuff
1: i got to get the holy water out after that. Exactly.
0: (laughs) Got to spritz around the room. (laughs) Well, I wanted to ask then, in regards to confrontation, are you a fight, flight, freeze, or fawn?
1: Ooh, can I ask for clarification on fawn? I don't know. Yeah, so
0: fawn is like uh, where you're in a confrontational situation. The most common use of it is, uh, for trigger warning, abusive relationships where the person in turn actually curls in and acts more affectionate to the person attacking them.
1: Oh, okay. I see. Hmm. I think in confrontation, I'm a fight. (laughs) Probably you'll attest to that. Um, If possible, I'll try to defuse the situation. But if not, I don't really see the point of flight. I'm pretty, pretty strong at confronting it right then and there
0: yeah so in a situation of say you were in a conversation with I don't know a cannibal how would you maneuver that situation because he is a psychiatrist so he can talk and talk very intelligently what would be your tactic in that situation
1: that's a question I've never been asked never ever (laughs) so that's a great question (laughs) I I did not Hmm. Well, I guess if he's a psychiatrist, speaking more in depth about maybe his motives, flipping it back around on him and why he's doing it, kind of like Clarice does in the cell when she he starts analyzing her and she tells him he should analyze himself, that might be helpful. I don't know if it would save me, but it would at least buy me some time to think of the next flight option, so...
0: Nice. Very good. So, your instinct is definitely fight. Yes. Um, <laughs> as a, as both of us are family members, we're well aware of anytime certain topics are brought up in any of the households that we go home for in Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever. It get, always gets very interesting. It's never boring being around Celeste. That's for sure. <laughs>
1: I'm taking that, interpreting it as a compliment. So thank you. Oh,
0: it's definitely a compliment. It's very entertaining to people (laughs) that are on the outside, like Nick and I, that are like, we're just not going to get involved. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask uh, as a couple of fun flying around questions. um, Do you wear shoes in your house?
1: Oh, no, I do not.
0: (laughs) I grew up not wearing shoes
1: in the house. And I have a shoe rack right by the front of my door, so shoes are off.
0: Very similar to Nick's situation. I apparently am the exactly only one that wears shoes be. in my house. Oof, heathen! I know Disgusting. <laughs> I know. Shame,
2: I know. shame,
0: shame, shame. What's your name?
2: I was going to say. So next, next little fun question we got here. So Celeste, you're you're very well known for. Eating out only the finest dining establishments. So, what is your favorite meal of all time? Be honest with us. If it's probably something that costs more than five hundred dollars a plate. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oof, I do. I do enjoy some nice dining around D.C. D.C. has amazing restaurants. We'll say that. Lately, I've been on a big sushi kick, and. The Unagi Roll at Shoto. Shoto DC opened last year, I believe. I think it's almost a year old. That's probably my favorite
0: meal right now. So Nice. I love sushi, especially in this area. East Coast sushi does hit different. It's It's very good.
2: good. I've been refraining from sushi for a while only because in a landlocked state is Arizona. You know, it's not the, <laughs> not the best option. Don't
0: want it. No. no. Yeah. So I wanted to ask, I know you don't play Dungeons and Dragons like us over here, but what would you consider your alignment? The options are, they range from chaotic to lawful with neutral being in the middle and then good to evil with neutral being in the middle. You can have any combination of those two. You could be lawful, good, lawful, evil, chaotic, evil, chaotic, good, et cetera.
1: Okay. Yes, I have seen these alignment charts before. You guys are more familiar. Do you have an inkling? I think what would be funny is if, on the count of three, you and Nick both said what you think I am, because you know me well and you know the alignments better than I do.
0: Hmm. All so, right, let's try that. Ready?
2: Okay. Three,
0: three, two, two, one.
2: one. Chaotic
0: Lawful good. Neutral. Uh You wait. So you said chaotic good. Yeah. That's my alignment.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I only, I say lawful neutral because you do follow a set of rules pretty strictly. Like with yourself, with how you carry yourself and even with like how well read you are. I feel like that's a very lawful trait. And I say neutral because any harm that happens is unintentional typically, unless you're winning a debate (laughs) and just, like, smearing the floor with their remains in a debate.
1: Okay, so I'm not good enough to be on the good, but I am neutral. Yeah.
2: But Nick thinks I'm good. My reasoning for saying that, Celeste, is chaotic good. So, good, because I don't perceive her as someone who is motivated by selfish means most of the time. Uh, I would believe that she has a higher order which she answers to uh, for the sake of good. So she's got that, um, what's the phrase? Uh, Altruism, maybe? But I do see her causing chaos amongst others uh, with her quick wit, especially if she were to say go up against a group of enemies. She would use that to uh, create chaos amongst them by paying them against themselves, using a, a few choice words here and there to create doubt amongst the team.
0: Well, she is an expert on saying the right words at the right time, even if that means destroying her enemies, which is (laughs) a great segue into our psychology of controlling a conversation, which is a big reason why we have you here. Hannibal Lecter, the psychiatrist and cannibal, he is known for being psychologically ahead of his conversational partners. So I want to get some tips from you on how we can be believe it or not, a little bit more like Hannibal and be psychologically ahead of our conversational partners.
1: Awesome. Okay, that I can speak more to than horror. So I'm glad you asked. Yeah, I think that one thing he does really well and a powerful tool we can take from Hannibal that is nonviolent is the ability to frame the conversation or reframe it if it's not supporting us. So in the scene where Clarice goes to visit him in prison um, and she wants him to take the questionnaire, he doesn't do it. He starts analyzing her. He accepts the paper, but immediately turns it back on her and doesn't actually fill out the questionnaire. And so he does not accept her frame, which is I'm here to get you to fill out the questionnaire and help me become a better trainee. And I think that happens a lot in In life in general, people will give us a frame and we think we have to accept it. Like when we're in a job interview or when we're on a date, we think, I have to answer this question or I have to operate within the bounds that someone's given me. But it's way more freeing and it gives you way more power in a conversation when you're able to, one, notice that frame and then two, reframe it so that it can benefit you in a better way. So even, for example, earlier in the conversation, when Kylie asked me to, let her know what my alignment was. I don't know too much about alignments. So I reframed it and put the question back on you guys because one, I thought it would be more helpful for the audience. And two, it takes the pressure off of me who is not super knowledgeable about alignment. And I think we can do that in our careers and our love lives and take more power back and not just accept a frame when someone gives it to us.
0: Wow, that was beautiful. I feel like you summed up what he does very well. He's never yeah. breaking a sweat as a character. And that's because he is constantly analyzing other people. So I'll have to
2: remember to use that in a future interview questions or future interviews <laughs> that I would have.
0: Yeah. Well, and one of the things that he does as well is he basically breaks down his conversational partner psychologically to the point that he can basically predict the actions that they're going to do and the words that they're going to say next. So do you have ideas on how we could do that as conversationalists as well to be more like Hannibal?
1: <laughs> yeah, that I would say that's a very impressive skill <clears throat> that he has. I I think it's difficult to predict someone's exact actions, but you can use their words and mannerisms to get insights on how you can be more persuasive to them. So for example, if someone is using a lot of hedging language, like they say just or, you know, or kind of, a lot in their conversation, you might be able to pick up that they're not sure. They're they're facing uncertainty. And that gives you room to think, okay, I have room to persuade this person. What areas are they speaking with these hedging words where I'm able to like wedge my way in? Or opposite, if they're using a lot of absolutes when they're saying this is not going to happen or there's no way that X, Y, Z, then you know, okay, this person has a mental block. Let me go back and reframe it and ask them. Maybe I'll even bring the frame out into the open and say, what's your goal in this conversation? Because this is my goal and you can work from there. So Hannibal obviously is very good at analyzing people down to a core kind of Sherlock level detail analysis of them, but we can use words, uh, mannerisms, and just pattern recognition to at least get into somewhat of that zone.
0: When you brought up pattern recognition, I feel like patterns are something that humans bring up very often, whether it's in how they speak, even down to the rhythm in which they speak. Could you give us a couple more examples on possible patterns to look for if we're in a, outside of absolutes and outside of hedging words that we could look for when we are in a conversation with somebody that we want to win the game of mental chess?
1: Sure. Did you have a specific context in mind of the setting or is it more just in general?
0: I think I would say in more of a confrontational setting, what are possible patterns that People could portray that you need to be able to immediately identify so that way you can one up them and outwit them essentially.
1: Yeah. Well, in confrontation, I think emotions play a large role. So if there are certain topics that constantly spark emotions in this person, knowing whether you should push those or walk away from those is helpful depending on your goal. So if bringing up a certain topic or certain number if it's like a salary negotiation or whatever the that certain thing is that you bring up elicits a very strong emotion from that person then depending on your goal you're either going to want to a continually bring up that one thing that sparks the emotion or b do the opposite and try to work away your way around it so i would say look for things that bring up specific emotions in the person because when people are more emotional they're not thinking as deeply or as critically and you may be able to use that to your advantage
0: Oh, interesting, which I think is exactly what Hannibal does. The times that he breaks Clarice down is when he recognizes that she is emotional about a certain topic. He's like, oh, I can dig into this deeper. I can dig in and break her down a little bit more and understand Mm -hmm. her more as a character.
2: So what signs are you typically looking for in those types of situations? I guess as someone who tries to think while also talking with someone at the same time, it's easy to easy to miss some of those uh, little cues. So what are you typically looking for?
1: Well, body language is helpful. If they tense up, um, then you can get a sense they're uncomfortable. They move their eyes away from you. If their face gets red, obviously very easy sign. They're angry or upset. And if they get really dismissive about something when you bring it up, that can be a sign that they're defensive and they might not have as much of a grasp on that concept. And I think this is a common one for people who are new in their careers, which a lot of my podcast listeners are in their early to mid 20s and they're new in their careers. And I'm sure they're familiar with bringing something up to a superior who gets a little defensive, even though they know their ideas are valid and good. So that's something I think worth noting is in what way can I hedge my language and my conversation to benefit myself while noting these patterns in my superior.
0: Hmm. And I wanted to circle back to your point that you made about when it's the right time to push on something that brings out emotion. Would it ever be the right time to push on something that brings out a negative emotion or are you primarily thinking of positive emotions to continue engaging? Like, for example, if somebody totally emotionally shuts down, would that be the correct time to continue pushing?
1: Um, It's pretty situational, I will say. So it's hard to give a, a general good rule of thumb. I think in situations where it would be helpful to push a negative emotion is if you know that having the person you're speaking with look flustered or look emotional benefits you. So you'll notice that lawyers in courtrooms will push witnesses when they start to get defensive or angry um, when it benefits their trial to look, to have that witness look unreliable or look flustered. Yeah. So that's something that can be helpful in specific contexts. Not always. Often you probably, you know, want everyone to be calm or more amiable, but in certain situations, it could help you to have the other person look like they're not in control.
0: Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, there's, I guess you're right in the sense that there's a lot of variety, but you can use it to your advantage. I guess I would always feel bad about hurting someone's feelings to a certain extreme. But I wanted to also ask, because you did debate in high school and you actually uh, would debate my husband in class. <laughs> um, can you From talk a little time. bit about yeah. those skills specifically outside of, specific confrontation into more of a debate-like setting?
1: Well, first, I want the record to reflect that Josh and I are on good terms and we don't debate that much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but when you say rules within a debate setting, what what specifically do you mean?
0: So I mean almost more in the setting of debating for sport rather than for large stakes like a salary or, or something like that, where this is more in almost like a classroom setting for students who are in school versus I'm negotiating my salary and I have to get this.
1: So just like helpful tactics for when you're debating for sport? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think one thing that was really helpful that I learned in, in high school was the ethos, pathos, logos framework. We went back to that a lot. So making sure your argument has credibility behind it, making sure it has feeling and then also making sure you bring some facts to the table, some data to support it. So having those three pillars of good old Aristotle taught us that, that can be really helpful, the perfect little trifecta of persuading someone. And then another thing I think that's helpful is just not getting too caught up or emotional um, within debates. So often when... We would debate in high school, we would start to get very intense about it, would even be a book character or something that we shouldn't have been so intensely emotional about. And I think the people who did the best in debate were able to detach themselves from being, you know, too fully invested to the point where they couldn't see the other side. Cause it's helpful when you can see at least a sliver of the other side. Mm-hmm. It makes you a stronger debater to know their points more fully. Yeah, I think that's... so. Do you
2: have any uh, tools for if you end up finding yourself caught in that situation where you are finding yourself emotionally attached to a certain part of the argument?
1: Well, you should always have multiple pathways or multiple points that support your argument so that if one gets knocked down or if one's very contentious, you can pivot to another one. That's what I've found to be helpful. If possible, you can step back, obviously, if you're getting too emotional, Um, but I would just say, yeah, having multiple pathways to persuade, like having the ethos, the pathos and the logos so that if one of your points doesn't seem to get across, you don't have to rely on it fully. Like you only have one leg to stand on because your partner can sense that and then just keep battering in that one point that you're making.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a really good point. As we're going to dive out of trying to be more like Hannibal, I want to do a quick summary. And Claire, I think you could help me with that here because you are you do great summaries on your podcast. So if we want to be more like Hannibal with psychologically controlling a conversation, would you say, based on what you said, here's a good summary based on what she does on her podcast, a better way to say. She would say that recognizing the frame of the conversation is really important. In knowing when and how to reframe the conversation so that way you are talking more about what you want and you are in power in that situation. You also said that pattern recognition is very important. That applies to body language, to hedge words, absolutes, and even the emotional recognition and recognizing when people are becoming emotionally overwhelmed. And then the final thing that we talked about in regards to becoming more like Hannibal, was in regards to debating, applying logos, ethos, and pathos into all your debates, but making sure that the emotional side of that is on the lower end.
1: Right. Yeah. Great summary, Kylie. <laughs> I will say I on the point about the emotions being on the lower side, that's more for you, but you, if it's beneficial to you to Appeal to strong emotions in the crowd or the person that you're talking to and put those on a higher side, totally fine, totally worth it. We all know the ASPCA commercials where they have the sad dog and the music.
0: The <laughs> the yep.
1: And people call in and people donate. So if you need to appeal to some emotions, go for it, but just don't get too attached yourself.
0: All right. Well, Celeste, we have just a couple more questions about your career so far so we wanted to ask prime your day job is in the marketing industry so we want to ask what brought you into the marketing industry and what's been your path so far
1: yeah I'll give the cliff notes version my first foray into marketing actually funnily enough started on a podcast I was a podcast editor in college and I did not know that yeah Amazing. I edited a podcast for a long form content creation company and they wrote a lot and did SEO services. And the podcast focused a lot on SEO, which is what initially got me interested in that realm of digital marketing. So that was my introductory phase, I guess, into the world. And then I also did a lot of brand partnerships, brand ambassadoring for really large companies. So I worked with keurig and listerine and just a bunch of national brands and i was a brand ambassador for them which got me interested in stories all the brands are trying to tell compelling stories and trying to communicate with a specific audience with a very limited amount of time to catch their attention so that's something i think we all have to do is work with limited time to be able to compel and speak deeply to people And that's what large brands are trying to do, but also what we are on an individual level trying to do every day.
0: I think social media has made a huge impact on that because now people's attention spans are like 10 seconds long when before they did have the attention span to watch a one minute commercial about saving animals. Now they (laughs) can watch a TikTok or an Instagram reel that's 15 seconds long and that still has the same effect.
1: Yep. I will say I listen to all my podcasts on at least one and a half speed, sometimes two speed. Me too. (laughs) Me too. Nick.
2: Okay. Uh, I'm definitely a one X guy. Okay.
1: That's crazy. Retro. He's very retro.
2: (laughs) I like to hear things as they were meant to be heard at a regular pace. (laughs) It's also why I'm a little bit slower at this. I'm not a fast conversationalist. I'm a, Hey, let's, let's keep this conversation at a slow pace. You know, nothing to do with my slow thinking.
0: For, for those of us that are in the 21st century, for aspiring content creators or brand ambassadors, what kind of advice would you give to them?
1: I would say consistency is very important and also perfecting your craft. So it's fun when you first get started to say you're going to be an XYZ niche or XYZ medium, like a podcast or a blog or whatever, Instagram, TikTok, but The people who tend to do well or who I project to do well in the future are going to be the people who keep nourishing their minds and getting better at their niche so that they're saying something that not everyone else is saying. So studying that, like actually studying whatever you're teaching people so that you're getting better pouring into yourself, reading, listening to podcasts, connecting and networking with people in that space so that you are bringing something of value and you're not just copy pasting from what a lot of other people in the space are saying. I think that's going to be really helpful when things get saturated, which they they can tend to be.
0: Yeah, things can, I mean, we have so many resources now. Like we have hundreds and hundreds of horror podcasts or hundreds and hundreds of conversational podcasts. It's all about making it different. So do you have some resources on ways that people could dig deeper? Say if they wanted to- have a really great Instagram that is getting brand ambassadorships. Do you have any like podcasts or books that they should read in that regard?
1: I mean, there are a ton kind of like you said, it really depends on what your what your goal is. There's pretty much a coach or a niche or a YouTube channel for everything. So, mm-hmm. for me in the conversation space, I like taking courses. I take um, courses through an online platform called Ultra Speaking that helps me become a better speaker. And then I also listen to podcasts with people who I think are very eloquent. And I read often, which helps me learn new words and become a more coherent speaker. Mm -hmm. But whatever the niche is, I'm sure there are resources. I'm sure you for film have things that you watch and listen to to try to sharpen that too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think also for me personally, a lot of it is just doing it and figuring it out as I go. Um, that tends to be
2: my methodology. Yeah, you just go and do it, and see what happens. Yeah.
0: That's But a good I like one. the idea yeah. of adding a little more research behind it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, be a, a doer, not just a thinker, though. That's important. But yeah. I like mm-hmm. that analogy or that imagery of just going as you building it as you go. I was speaking to a man recently who built multi million dollar business from the ground up, and he was saying. I didn't even know what I was doing half the time. I was just putting the wings on the plane as, as we flew. And i was like, that sounds dangerous, (laughs) but it's also true. You learn the most when you're in the thick of it. So.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So could you tell us what you're working on now and where audiences can keep up with you? Of course.
1: Yes. Who doesn't love a little self promo?
0: (laughs) This is your chance. Mm -hmm. I'm currently
1: working on the podcast, A Better Way to Say. That is my baby at the moment. And it's geared towards leveling up your communication skills. So I'm working on episodes all around, building up your confidence in conversation and becoming a more persuasive speaker. And you can find me there at A Better Way to Say on all the regular podcast apps. So Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon. Does anyone use iHeartRadio? If you do, I'm on that. (laughs) So you can find me there. And then for the fashion lovers, my blog is called The Elegance Edit. And I post a lot about capsule wardrobes and minimalist fashion. So if you're into that, I don't know if that's your thing, Nick, but now you know, (laughs) you can find me there as well. I love it.
2: Your sister, my wife, has been uh, upgrading me in the world of fashion. So I have been learning a bit more. And to add a little bit of a uh, promotion to Celeste's podcast, I just want to say I've only listened to the first. Two or three episodes, and already I'm trying to take those lessons and apply them to my regular life, and even prepare for future job interviews that I might have. And I, I do find that uh, those lessons are helping me out. So yeah.
0: well, they are even, useful tools. Even from the filmmaker perspective, you know, with the line of work that I do, the I really loved your episode about the art of storytelling. I think a lot of those were really good reminders of things that we need to be doing because recently I submitted my first pitch for a TV show and like that, uh, (laughs) thank you. A lot of that was reminding myself of how are we telling the story and trying to take into what you said, not giving too much detail away, especially on something like a pitch deck where we don't want somebody to just take our work and run with it, but we want to give a good picture of what we're saying without giving too much away. So yeah, your your podcast is even helping people in the filmmaking industry like myself. So definitely take a listen to A Better Way to Say and check out her fashion blog. So we'll make sure to link those in the show notes so everybody can Thank check you. it out. Yes, and- I'll
1: have to get you two on the podcast when I start doing interview episodes. I will have you on and we can... I'll obviously you know, edit it to fit your your niche a little bit, but yeah, it will be great to have you guys on in the future. And I'm glad you're listening to it. Glad you're liking it. New episode just dropped recently on how to be charming where we study Cleopatra. So
0: Ooh, that's ready um, for you as well. That is so exciting. Something
2: I'll definitely be ready to use. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Well, Nicholas, do you want to close us out for this episode? And then we can say toodaloo.
2: All right. So- Uh, Thank you, everybody, for listening. And thank you, Celeste, for joining us on this interview episode of Survive This Crit, Pester the Guester. Please uh, leave a like and leave any comments or reviews you might have for us. And uh, we hope to see you all next time.
0: Bye. Bye.
2: Bye.